when I come to die, when I come to die, I don't know if you've had a chance to uh, be at someone's bedside as they slip from this life. Uh, I've had that, that privilege on several occasions, and uh, it's, a, it's a powerful time. Uh, it's a very pointed time. <laughs> There's not a lot of peripheral stuff being talked about, right? But it's eternity in view. Uh, a valediction, this is a new vocabulary word for me today. A valediction is a message of farewell and is sometimes used to describe a person's last words before death. Valediction. Again, last words are very significant. Uh, We have this great scene with uh, Jesus and his disciples in the upper room, right? On the eve of his arrest and subsequent crucifixion, uh, Jesus gathered with his disciples in what we call the Last Supper. He gave what is often called the Upper Room Discourse, And it's not terribly long, but it is incredibly significant. Judas had left the room, and Jesus was now alone with his other 11 disciples. And he told them, the time has come for me to depart. He gave them a new command. He comforted them with the promise of the Holy Spirit. He warned them of coming hardship, and he promised them that he would return. The last things that he wanted them to have ringing in their ears. Here in 2 Timothy, our text for today, we have Paul's valediction, his last words. Much of the letter is a reflection on suffering in the Christian life. This was Paul's context. This is what he was experiencing. This is what he chooses to talk about with his son in the faith, Timothy. Paul's in a Roman prison, awaiting execution. Uh, There is a trial underway. Paul relates this at the end of the letter, and it's not going well. It's not looking good. He didn't expect to be released. He was all alone except for his colleague, Luke. He asked Timothy to come quickly. Not sure that Timothy would arrive in time. There's an interesting statement made in chapter 4 that winter was coming. There's just sort of this, he asks, Paul asks for his cloak. (laughs) Right? There's sort of a cold chill over the text. As Paul talks about this very sobering topic of suffering. Uh, We, in our Western context, have been spared widespread and violent persecution. But suffering for the faith has been a normal part of life for believers down through the ages. And even today, as Dan referenced in his prayer, martyrdom for the faith is much more common than most Western Christians realize. There have been more Christian martyrs during the past century and a half than in the previous 18 centuries combined. We have places like Haiti, we have Afghanistan, Uh, the list is long. And I would suggest that suffering is coming for all of us who will follow Jesus faithfully. This is part of Paul's message to Timothy. 
This is part and parcel of the Christian life, to encounter hardship and opposition and suffering. We experience a growing dissonance with our culture, whether it's in relationship to sexual ethics or matters of gender identity, who we believe we are as image bearers of God, uh, even simple things like sports. My daughter is looking at maybe playing some volleyball just locally, and the tryout for the one particular club is on Sunday morning. Like, really? <laughs> Not exactly hardcore persecution, okay? But we feel that. We feel the, the dissonance with our culture. And so I'm going to suggest to you that we, like Timothy, have to have a proper understanding of the role of suffering in the life of the believer. I've often referenced Ajit Fernando's little book, The Call to Joy and Pain. Ajit Fernando's from Sri Lanka. Uh, he has known suffering. His country has known suffering for the faith. And in that little book, he challenges the Western church to understand the role of suffering in the life of the Christian. Uh, as I was thinking about Paul's language in the text, it struck me that winter is coming for all of us. And I don't just mean the fact that it's colder out there this morning. <laughs> right? There is this sort of ominous uh, indication that uh, there is yet suffering for us to, to enter into for the sake of the gospel. So this is, this is what Paul wants to talk about with his last words. Now we are continuing our Route 66 series, Road Trip Through the Bible. We've considered creation, fall, redemption, God's uh, great uh, design in creating the world and in uh, creating people, humanity, in his image to be his representatives in the world. A beautiful uh, design, uh, perfection there in the Garden of Eden. Uh, but of course, we also encountered sin, the entry of sin and rebellion into the world, and its most significant consequence, death. And so we find the dilemma of humanity, Adam and Eve, out of the garden, cut off from access to the tree of life. Here's the crisis in human history. And then we see God's unfolding plan. We were we've been introduced to it. God promised Adam and Eve right there in the wake of their sin... Uh, as they stood outside the Garden of Eden, that God would send a deliverer to make things right. And uh, that deliverer has now come. That promise has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, who has come to make all things new and to make all things right and to put an end to death and suffering and pain. And then we come here to uh, a little cluster of letters I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to advance that or not. We'll see. Um, a little cluster of letters there, uh, written by the Apostle Paul, uh, where he unpacks the gospel. He helps them to know how they are to live as God's redeemed people. Uh, and uh, each of those little letters that Paul wrote to the first century churches has a backstory, right? So we've just stopped to consider the narrative that lies behind each of these letters. So let's consider that here for Timothy. There we go. While most of Paul's letters were written to churches, 
First and Second Timothy and Titus were written to young pastors. By the way, I covered a little bit of this backstory last week because we were in First Timothy, Paul's first letter to Timothy. And uh, so a lot of duplication in terms of the backstory. Um, while most of Paul's letters were written to churches, First and Second Timothy and Titus were written to young pastors. Timothy was from the city of Lystra. He was the son of a Greek father and a Jewish mother. Uh, the sense is that his father was not a, a believer, a follower of God. His mother was. He was influenced by the faith of his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois. They introduced him to the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, uh, provided a foundation for Timothy's life. Paul often referred to Timothy as his true son, and he raised Timothy in the faith. So Timothy had a father, biological father, but uh, the sense again is that his father did not, uh, was not a believer, was not a Christian, and so Paul raised uh, Timothy as his son in the faith, took him on his second missionary journey, and uh, poured his life into this young man. Paul and Timothy had different and complementary ministries. Paul was always forging ahead into new regions where the gospel was not known. Timothy was often left behind to strengthen and establish local churches. And I think this really flowed out of their different personality types as well. Uh, Paul was sort of type A. He was uh, brash and confident and putting himself out there. Timothy was more reserved, uh, seemingly even had some physical sicknesses, uh, maybe had an uh, a, 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 an upset stomach. He, he was one who, who felt the stress of, of, uh, of, of life and ministry, and God used both Paul and Timothy in their differences uh, in terms of service in his kingdom. Paul had been arrested again and was now back in a Roman prison awaiting execution. Uh, this is a huge part of the backstory for 2 Timothy. This, again, is Paul's last... Uh, his last words, his last letter. It is possible that Alexander, the metal worker, had caused trouble for Paul, leading to his arrest. Paul references Alexander at the end of the letter here, and uh, it could be that that was part of what led to Paul's most recent arrest. We, we, we don't know that for sure. And Timothy served faithfully, Again, the scriptures sort of record the rest of the story. When we're first introduced to Timothy, he's just a young man. He had shown great promise. He had been very faithful. Um, but the scriptures bear out that he finished strong as well. Paul commends him in Philippians 2. says, I have no one else like Timothy who has genuine concern for the churches. Everyone else is looking out for their own concern, their own welfare. But there was a selflessness about Timothy that he was concerned about the church. Uh, we also have a statement there in Hebrews 13 uh, that Timothy himself would be imprisoned for the gospel. So here's a guy who, like Paul, paid the price for his faith in Jesus Christ. So here's the, the back story. Now I suggested to you that Paul's letter is really focused on suffering. And uh, so I've entitled this little section, Lessons from Death Row. <laughs> Uh, as Paul awaits execution, this is what's on his mind. This is what he wants to talk to Timothy about in his last words. And there is a, a number of things that I, I want us to just highlight. I think it provides a helpful way for us to approach the letter, to organize the letter as we think about the theme of suffering. 
The first is what I call an invitation to suffering, this first section. Matter of fact, twice here, Paul actually says to Timothy, join me in suffering for the gospel. He invites Timothy into this life of suffering. It's a rather interesting invitation, right? Uh, let's consider what's going on here in 2 Timothy chapter 1, uh, verse 3. I thank God, whom I serve as my ancestors did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. I think there's a few things here that sort of speak to Timothy's struggles and his own suffering. First of all, the obvious reference here to Timothy's tears. Uh, probably at their parting, when Paul and Timothy parted, probably in the city of Ephesus, um, Paul has this vision locked in his mind of Timothy crying. It reflected the great love that they had for one another. Again, this Alexander character that Paul talks about was a resident of Ephesus. So Paul's in Rome in a prison. Timothy has been left at Ephesus in Asia, modern-day Turkey. And this Alexander character was in Ephesus. He's a resident of that city. And so this Alexander had made trouble for Paul there in Ephesus... Possibly Timothy had watched Paul be arrested in the city. We, we don't really, again, it's a bit of speculation, but there was this, uh, this anguish, uh, this, this separation that took place there. Gospel ministry, by the way, involves a lot of goodbyes. Just talked with Jennifer DeKrieger as she was heading back to Togo, West Africa, uh, with three of her boys left behind here in the States. You know, if we engage the task of Great Commission ministry, uh, it's going to involve some, some, some tearful goodbyes. Certainly that was the case here for Timothy. The text hints, though, at other hardships here as well. Uh, Paul had warned the elders in Ephesus that savage wolves were going to come into the church, false teachers, and that had come to fruition. That had become a reality Paul then left Timothy in Ephesus to confront false teaching, according to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Matter of fact, the same Alexander who had caused trouble for Paul was still in Ephesus and was causing trouble for Timothy. <laughs> so, Timothy's in the, in the throes of trying to deal with false teaching in the church. Paul encourages Timothy here to fan into flame the gift of God. It's as if the, the flame is starting to go out a little bit. Paul, Paul's saying, add another log, you know, fan that flame. Let's, let's get those coals going again. And he, and he has to tell Timothy, uh, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So Paul's giving Timothy a pep talk here because Timothy is discouraged and Paul knows Timothy's propensity for discouragement and anxiety. And so he's encouraging 
Timothy here in the midst of the difficulties of ministry. Verses 8 through 14, uh, Paul makes some interesting connections between suffering and the power of God. 2 Timothy 1, verse 8, So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life. So Paul says God has called us to a holy life. That means a distinct life, a life that is set apart. We don't just go with the flow. God has called us to be holy, to swim upstream, to go against the current, against the grain. So this is part of the calling that God has placed on our lives. If you're a follower of Christ, you are making a decision to go against the grain of the world. And so this is, this is the context, as Paul says, join with me on the path of suffering. Timothy? Notice, again, the connection between suffering and power. He says, join with me, verse 8, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So again, Paul's making connections here between suffering and God's power. That we think of suffering as a path of weakness, right? We're defeated. If we suffer, we are feeling defeated. But Paul has to remind Timothy that God exerts his power or displays his power in human weakness. So we have Paul with his thorn in the flesh, right? He had some physical ailment. um, And three times, on three different occasions, he asked God to remove this physical ailment, this thorn in the flesh, because it was a limitation on him in his ministry. Finally, God has to tell him, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. In other words, I show up in your suffering. So this is what Paul is reminding Timothy of. I know it seems like you're being beaten down and and you're, you're discouraged, but remember that this is when God does his best work. Right? Join with me on the path of suffering. It is the path of God's power. John Bunyan captures this really well in Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, of course, he describes there the life of Christian, this man who had a huge burden on his back because of uh, the guilt of his sin. And he finally is able to relieve himself of his burden at the cross. And the burden rolls off of his back. But then he carries on a a well-marked pathway. And he encounters a very steep hill called the Hill of Difficulty. And he stands there looking at this hill and contemplating his options. (laughs) A few other travelers come and see the hill and decide to take a shortcut around the hill. But Christian knows that the path is clearly marked. The path takes him up the hill of difficulty. And he commits to staying on the path. I think that's what Paul is saying to Timothy. Timothy, God has called us to be his holy people, to be distinct, to go against the grain of the world. He's called us to the hill of difficulty. Join me on that path. 
So it's this unique invitation to join with Paul in his suffering. He points here as well to Christ uh, as the one who walked that path and who achieved great victory, right, through his death on the cross. And he points to himself as one who's walking that path at at the moment, suffering for Christ with the expectation that there will be vindication down the road. So Paul calls Timothy to join on that path. He then includes a couple of examples to avoid and emulate uh, here at the end of chapter 1, verse 15. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phagellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when I was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. So again, most all of Paul's co-workers in Asia had abandoned him. Timothy was well aware of this because Timothy was living in Asia. A lot of people had been disillusioned by Paul and his consistent imprisonments. Things were not going well for Paul. And a lot of people jumped ship, just like they jumped ship on Jesus when the tide of public opinion turned, right? So, and he points out even Phagellus and Hermogenes, even Phagellus and Hermogenes. Like the, the, the sense of the text is these were guys that you would have thought would have been very faithful to the end. And they too had abandoned Paul. In contrast, there was Onesiphorus. Onesiphorus was a resident of Ephesus. He was part of the church there where Timothy was at. And he had traveled all the way to Rome to encourage Paul. He sought out Paul. The sense of the text is that there was great effort involved in getting an audience with Paul, getting permission to see him in, in prison. And he was not ashamed to be associated with Paul. This was not a good time to be associated with Paul, to hitch your wagon to Paul, right? But Onesiphorus uh, was loyal to Paul, loyal to the gospel. And Paul says here at the close of his letter, he references the fact that Onesiphorus has now returned back to Ephesus. And so Paul is is encouraging Timothy to follow the example of this individual. So the the invitation to suffering. Paul then shares some perspectives on suffering. Paul presents in chapter 2 a series of images or word pictures to help Timothy think properly about the nature of the Christian life. He first of all talks about how the The Christian life is like being a a faithful guardian. Chapter 2, verse 1. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. So he says, Timothy, I've given you a sacred trust. And you now have a responsibility to pass that on to others, faithful people, who will be able to pass it on to the next generation. So he, he, he views, uh, wants Timothy to think of himself as this 
guardian. Um, no matter what comes, safeguard the treasure of the gospel. He speaks about Timothy's identity as a good soldier. Uh, chapter 2, verse 3, Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. A soldier, again, does not expect to be coddled, uh, doesn't expect to make everyone happy. A soldier has one focus, and that is to please his or her commanding officer. Life of a soldier is not an easy life. Again, here in this particular text, in verse 3, Paul uses the same phrase again. Join with me in suffering as a good soldier. The life of a soldier is not an easy life. He talks again about the uh, dedicated athlete in chapter 2, verse 5. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to to the rules. First of all, successful athletes compete, right? They contend, they wrestle, they struggle. Uh, It doesn't just happen, you don't just wake up one day and think, oh, I'm going to go compete in the Olympic events. You know, there's a whole backdrop of preparation. And an athlete must compete according to the rules. And one of the rules was a requirement of at least 10 months of training and preparation. Only after all this would the athlete contend for the crown. Timothy's success would only come through arduous training. And then the hardworking farmer. Chapter 2, verse 6. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. The farmer who labors in the field and bides his time, will receive the crop. Again, the farmer doesn't just go out there and uh, think, oh, this is a good day to go out and, and pick corn, you know. No, the farmer goes out there and toils and sweats and, and uh, plants the seed and makes sure the, the seed is watered and then waits and bides his or her time until the time of the harvest. This is the mindset that Timothy needs to embrace, right? All of these images encourage a long-term perspective. They talk about delayed gratification. They talk about the hardship and sacrifice that are inherent in the Christian life. Paul expresses all of these things to help bring a certain perspective of suffering. How does suffering fit within the broader context of the Christian life. And then he closes this section with uh, an exhortation. Here it is in chapter 2, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. He says, remember the pattern of Jesus, right? Who, Who died, who experienced tremendous persecution and opposition and hardship and suffering. 
but remember that he was resurrected. This is the path. This is the formula. Jesus died but was raised from the dead. Jesus suffered but he was vindicated. And those who die with him will live with him. And those those who endure will reign with him. So again, he wants Timothy to think about his suffering through a certain lens, with a certain perspective. In chapter 2, verse 14, there's a section here that I've entitled, The Response to Suffering. And here Paul includes a series of instructions for Paul as to how he is to conduct himself in light of this opposition, this suffering. And notice that the opposition is not just out there in the world. It's in the church. It's false teachers. So again, a series of instructions. Carefully articulate God's truth. Focus on the exposition and the declaration of Scripture. Chapter 2, verse 14. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Don't get, don't get caught off in all these other philosophical arguments. Handle God's truth. Become expert in using and dispensing and declaring God's truth. Avoid godless teaching. Chapter 2, verse 16, avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth. This is a reference here, this godless teaching or godless chatter in verse 16 uh, is a reference to secular theories that oppose the truth of God's word. And Paul says, don't allow these things to take root. They will spread like wildfire, like gangrene. Right? This uh, gangrene was uh, one of the, the most feared ailments in battle. Uh, an infection, if you had some sort of an injury, you were pierced with a sword, whatever it might be, the big fear was that infection would set in and spread throughout your body very quickly. So Paul uses that imagery to say you, you have to remove that infection, that, that false teaching for the health of the body. Adopt gracious speech patterns. Here we are in uh, chapter 2, verse 22. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Paul wants Timothy to conduct himself honorably, uh, 
wants him to speak truth, but he wants him to do it with a certain posture. And he says here in verse 22, flee the evil desires of youth. We probably look at that and think, here's a young man, Timothy, flee evil desires of youth. Maybe Paul's talking about sexual temptation, but that's not what he has in mind here. The, the evil desires of youth are pride and self-promotion and being argumentative and uh, Paul's calling him to avoid uh, argumentation, to be kind, to gently instruct those who oppose you, to not be resentful, to don't get angry. These are the youthful passions that he is challenging Timothy with. He wants him to to speak truth in love. And, And he makes... The connection here that these opponents are people. These are people that are created in the image of God. These are people that maybe are trapped in some false way of thinking, some destructive patterns in their minds. The the goal is not just to win an argument. The goal is to win these people. Right? Talks about the trap of the devil and... And he wants Timothy to not enter into adversarial relationships. It's such an important word for us. We live in such a toxic culture where uh, people respond in, in anger and make broad generalizations and sweeping character attacks. And these things are not helpful in terms of, of uh, they, they drive people away. We need to learn to argue well. To be able to articulate God's truth in a gracious and winsome manner. And to avoid petty arguments. Avoid those who persist in sin. Chapter 3. Paul says, um, things are going to get worse, Timothy. And many are not going to respond to correction. They're not going to respond to the truth of God's word. Some people, he goes on to give a long list here, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Lovers, verse 4, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. There are some who are more interested in doing what they want to do than what God wants them to do. And so Paul just says, hey, that's, that's a reality. If people are, are entrenched and they, they are committed to living in rebellion against God, then separate yourselves from them. So seek to win them. Be gracious. Be patient. But at the end of the day, if they will not turn, then you need to step away and separate yourself. Avoid such people. Not separating yourself from the world, but separating yourself from Christians, people who call themselves Christians, who are unwilling to live in accordance with God's word. Remember that you are not alone. Chapter 3, verse 10. Paul again goes and shares with Timothy, reminds Timothy of his own story. He lists all the cities in which he had been persecuted and mistreated and imprisoned. 
Timothy, you're not alone. What a great encouragement that is uh, for, for, for Timothy. Sometimes we can think that when we're suffering or we experience some kind of rejection for the gospel, we wonder, what did I do wrong, you know? Is God punishing me? Has God abandoned me? Is God displeased with me? Paul says, no, this is a normal part of life for the Christian. We are going to experience mistreatment and suffering. Matter of fact, notice what Paul says here in verse 12 of chapter 3. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is the pathway that we have been called to walk. So we think... uh, Kids feel a little out of it in their school setting because of their walk with Christ. Yes, right? You feel like you're discriminated against in certain ways in your workplace because of your faith. Yes, this this is part of the package. This comes with the calling. Paul wants Timothy to know, wants us to know that we are not alone in this. And then he urges Timothy to keep coming back to the scriptures. Chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Tremendous statement here at the end of this chapter on scripture. And the the fact that it is the very breathed out words of God. And it is valuable for equipping us for every good work. So he urges Timothy to come back to the scriptures. Continue in the faith, he says to him, which are able to make, which is able to make you wise for salvation. I was thinking there about uh, the disciples and Jesus, and when a lot of people began walking away from Jesus, and Jesus said to the disciples, "Are you going to walk away too?" And they said, "Where would we go? No one else has the words of eternal life. No one else is offering what you're offering, Jesus." And Paul just reminds Timothy, remember what you have in your faith. You have the offer and the promise of salvation. Continue in the faith. And finally here at the end in chapter 4, we have what I call the motivation for suffering. Paul extends a final charge for Timothy to preach the word. Preach the word in season and out of season, when it is popular and when it is unpopular. A time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine. They will gather around them teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. Preach anyway. (laughs) Give the full gamut of biblical teaching. Correct. Rebuke. Encourage. Don't dodge hard topics. And preach with great patience. Change will not take place overnight. Propositional preaching is certainly out of vogue in our culture that values dialogue, but we are committed to it. We are not just told to engage in dialogue with God. We hear from God and His Word. His Word declares the promises and commands of God. And so we are to be committed to preaching, to the bold declaration of God's word. So Paul gives that, that, cha- that charge again to Timothy, but uh, he also, in this section, motivates Timothy. 
Notice what he says here to begin this section in chapter 4, verse 1. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Paul reminds Timothy that God is present, that God is watching, and that Christ is returning, and that his kingdom is going to be established Preach the word in light of God's presence and Christ's soon return and the certainty of his kingdom. Uh, Paul wants Timothy to have this in his mind. And throughout this closing section, he continues to reference this. Paul reflects on his own suffering in chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. But he notes that he stands to receive the crown of righteousness, right? That the judge will award to him. So Paul, again, is thinking about his own suffering, his own imprisonment, his own impending execution. And he's thinking about it in light of future reward. He wants Timothy to think that way too. He talks again about Alexander. Chapter 4, verse 14. Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done, right? God will take care of it. God will take care of Alexander. And although everyone had deserted Paul, the Lord was at his side, verses 16 and 17. The Lord has delivered me and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. So Paul, as he charges Timothy, wants Timothy to be mindful of the sovereignty of God of the certainty of Christ's return. He wants to motivate him to continue to endure suffering. In the closing verses, Paul extends a greeting to his co-workers in Ephesus. He gives a brief report of where some of his colleagues are serving. He extends greetings from the believers in Rome to the church in Ephesus. And he pronounces a benediction over Timothy, reminding Timothy of God's presence and asking God to give Timothy his peace.